I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. If you recall from last week, we uh, considered that the passage where Jesus calls Levi, a notorious tax collector, to be one of his disciples, one of his special disciples. And then he proceeded to dine and feast with all of Levi's notorious buddies. And this created quite a stir uh, in town and amongst those who were uh, present there. And this evening we see this theme of, of feasting continue in our passage. So Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy word. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. I think we all recognize that there are different attitudes, postures, emotions that accord with the various events and seasons of our life. For instance, I remember uh, Back when I was uh, growing up, I believe I was in, in junior high at the time, I went to a, a, uh, a birthday party of one of my classmates, and I, uh, I forgot, I, didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't clued in that this was a birthday party. And I just thought it was a gathering of friends. And I get there, and the cake comes out, and I ask, oh, whose birthday is it? It was a very awkward moment. Because basic to the idea of going to a birthday party is knowing that you're celebrating a birthday. And we know this with the other events that we have in our lives, weddings, the birth of a new baby, these are times of joy. Funerals, these are times of sorrow and grief and mourning. We know this even with seasons of life, whether it be children or young adults or those in, in the middle of their life or those entering retirement. There's, there's emotions, postures, attitudes that accord fit with these events and, and seasons of life. And when we act contrary to these postures, it can be awkward or it can lead to tension, even conflict. Well, what about the Christian life? What posture, what attitude should characterize the Christian life? Those, especially for those of us who live after the first coming of Christ. What attitude should, should characterize our Christian identity? If we belong to Christ... What demeanor should accord with that identity? 
Well, this is the very question that our text answers for us this evening. In fact, our text gives us two main options. Is the Christian life a life of feasting, or is the Christian life a life of fasting? In fact, this is the very question that is implied uh, to Jesus himself. And it's this question that I want us to to first consider uh, this evening. This is how, uh, in fact, our, our passage begins with with this implied question that's stated to our Savior is basically this. Are Jesus and his followers be characterized by feasting or by fasting? Now again, remember the context, what we considered last week. Jesus called Levi, who was a notorious tax collector. Everyone who in that society would, would have despised him. That itself would have been outrageous, but then Jesus goes to his home and feasts with all of Levi and his friends. Now this surely would have caused eyebrows to raise, whispers would have spread like wildfire throughout the town. What is this teacher doing? This teacher who speaks with this authority that we've never heard in our religious leaders, but this teacher who does things our religious leaders wouldn't even think of doing. And the Pharisees last week asked the disciples of Jesus, what he's up to. And now we see that another group of people are are posing a similar question. What is this Jesus up to? In fact, Luke describes these these people with this generic uh, word they. As our text says, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Now this they is likely referring to a generic uh, group of people, not the Pharisees, but this people who would have heard what Jesus is up to. And they're wondering, what's what's going on? Because they know the practice, the conduct of the Pharisees, the disciples of John, who lived a very strict lifestyle of routine fasting, of offering liturgical prayers throughout the day. That was the, the, the pious Jewish life. And now Jesus comes and acts completely contrary to that, and they're they're wondering, what's going on? There's tension. It's important for us to know a little bit behind, a little bit of context behind the the practice of fasting in Jesus' day and in Judaism in general, so that we can feel a little bit of what these, these people would have felt who asked this question to our Lord. In the Old Testament, there's only one command to fast. And it's on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, when the high priest would enter into the very Holy of Holies to offer um, a sacrifice for the people. But there was a lot more fasting that we read about going on in the Old Testament. Lots of individuals fast. And this fasting expressed was one way to express mourning, not as early in the morning, but mourning as in grief and sorrow of, of repentance in light of God's judgment. Now, when you read your Old Testament, is Israel generally obedient or disobedient? Well, they're disobedient. That's the repeated theme we see. They constantly act contrary to the law of God, which was given to them at Mount Sinai. And thus, an attitude, a posture 
of, of fasting, not just literally but metaphorically, of sorrow, of grief, of mourning, of repentance because of God's judgment, which has justly come upon them because of their disobedience, was very fitting. In fact, at the time of Jesus, the Pharisees, the disciples of John, and other zealous Jews, they had the practice of fasting, literally fasting two days a week, Mondays and Thursdays. Boys and girls, imagine going without food two days a week. That's a lot of fasting. So you can imagine the confusion of, of these people. The standard, the accepted practice of a pious Jew at that time was one of literal and metaphorical fasting. That's what they knew. And now Jesus has come along as, as this, probably, uh, this controversial, somewhat confusing figure, and he's eating and drinking. This is going against their basic accepted practice and belief, teaching that they were brought up in their basic intuition. In fact, it probably would be, sort of, it'd be uh, similar to going to a wedding and seeing the bride come out in a black dress. You may not know why we, we uh, you know, brides wear white dresses, but you know that that seems off. Strange. Or going to a funeral in beach apparel. Feels inappropriate, odd, out of place, not appropriate. That's how these people would have felt. As Jesus and his disciples come eating and, and drinking. Well, this question, or this implied question, is not just for the disciples of Jesus in his day. This is for all of his followers. All of those who live after the first coming of Christ. What should characterize the life of a follower of, of Jesus? Fasting or or feasting. And to further, to further explain and flesh out kind of what these, these two options are, as I've already briefly alluded to, fasting was, was used, literal fasting was one way to express that posture of, of grieving or of, of mourning or of repentance because of God's judgment. So yes, you had literal fasting, but God's people were always to, to be represented by metaphorical fasting, especially as they, they repeatedly disobeyed God as a people. In fact, they were under the Romans. They didn't have a son of David on the throne because of their disobedience. Well, what about feasting? What, what does that represent? Well, think about it in your own experience in life. When you think of a feast or a, a, a very fine meal or, or big meal, what, what do you think of? Think of joy or gratitude or comfort, community maybe. In fact, this is how we celebrate most every momentous occasion in our lives, whether it be holidays, whether it be birthdays or, or big events. We have a feast, right? a big meal. So yes, you have literal feasting, but metaphorical feasting. This posture of joy, gratitude. In the context of this passage, uh, passage, joy in Christ. This question isn't necessarily a strictly either or, but it's what should primarily characterize our lives as Christians, as those who live after the first coming of Christ. Fasting or feasting? 
That's a good question. And Jesus has a good answer. An answer that I'd like us to now consider. And Jesus' answer is that this time's a time to feast. This time is a time to feast. Think of it this way. Before the coming of Christ, it was a, a time of literal and metaphorical fasting. But now, after the coming of Christ, it's a time of literal and metaphorical feasting. And Jesus explains, fleshes out this assertion by giving us three illustrations. He points first to a wedding. This is often how Jesus responds in the Gospels. He, he, he'll bring up something that's, that's just basic common sense to everybody around him. He says, can you make a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? This is something that everyone would have known the answer to, especially in that day as the weddings in, in Judaism were, were quite extravagant. A week long of, of feasting, of celebration. Do you make your, your wedding guests fast? No, it's quite to the contrary. It's a time of feasting, of celebration, of joy. It's the basic intuition of everybody. Not just in that day, but in every age. And Jesus here is equating himself with the bridegroom. In the Old Testament, God himself uh, described, uh, God described himself as the husband to Israel. So here we do we see an implicit claim to deity that Christ is claiming to be the bridegroom the husband of his people, and the bridegroom has come. This is the moment that the saints of the Old Testament are waiting for with with anticipation for centuries. The bridegroom has come. This is a time to feast. A time to rejoice. In fact, then he continues in verse 35, and he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now, what is Jesus referring to here? Jesus made the claim that the bridegroom has come. It's time to feast. But he is alluding to a future time period where the bridegroom will be taken away from his people, and then, and then it will be a time of fasting. Was this the time between Good Friday and Easter, or is this a time in which we live in, the time after the ascension? Well, at least it's referring to that time between Good Friday and Easter. After Jesus was crucified, it was not a time of rejoicing or feasting for the disciples. This was a time of mourning, of grieving, fasting. That definitely was a time of fasting. But what what about after the ascension of Christ. Is that a time of of fasting? Is this what Jesus is referring to as well? Yes, there is a sense in which Christ is bodily absent from his people right now. Read the end of Luke 24 and Acts 1 that Christ bodily ascended to heaven. But the question is, is Christ fundamentally with us or absent from us? I believe the New Testament answers that question by saying that Christ is fundamentally with his people. You may recall Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, where Jesus says, when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Or Jesus' words in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, as he is about to ascend into heaven, 
He tells his disciples, behold, I will be with you always to the end of the earth. Christ is present with his people through the Spirit. This is a time to feast. It's not a time to fast. It's a time to feast. He's with his people. So that's the first illustration. The bridegroom has come. He's with his people. That's categorically different than the saints of the Old Testament. Now we see a second illustration, which is found in verse 36. Jesus says in this parable, No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. Again, he's appealing to basic common sense wisdom here. Boys and girls, imagine, I would imagine you have an old shirt, a shirt that probably doesn't fit you anymore, a shirt that might have some holes in it, Imagine you take that shirt and you also take your, your favorite shirt and maybe a, a brand new shirt and you cut a patch over the brand new shirt to try to patch up the little hole in your old shirt. Would that be a very smart idea? No. Because you ruin the new shirt and your old shirt just looks more ugly because you have a, a patch that doesn't even match. So Jesus is making this this illustration to show that there are certain things that are incompatible with this new age. And Jesus makes the same point, the same point in verses 37 through 38 as he uses the illustration of of wine and wineskins. He says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Again, this would have been something that most people would have been very, very familiar with in that age. In that age, wineskins were made out of, of sheepskin. And new wineskin would have been uh, very pliable and you have a level of elasticity to it, which would have been very important for the fermentation process of wine. Because when wine is fermenting, it causes the wineskin to expand. And so you need that wineskin to be pliable. But if you put new, but over time, this wineskin will become brittle. And if you put new wine into an old wineskin that's brittle, what's going to happen during the fermentation process? It's going to burst. It's not pliable any longer. So Jesus is saying something that would have made sense, basic common sense the people of that age. You don't put new wine, old wineskin, because you're going to destroy both. The wine and the wineskin. Well, as you can see by this point, the point of, of, of both of these illustrations, the garments and the, the wine, is that there's a new age that's dawning with the coming of Christ. And there's certain things relating to the old order that are incompatible with this new age. Now, there's points of continuity and discontinuity with the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. What you read in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Jesus here is pointing out one area of discontinuity. He's saying the bridegroom has come. We're in the age of, 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 of the new garments. It's a time of feasting, of joy. So we are primarily to be characterized 
by feasting, by a posture of joy, because the bridegroom is, is with us. And as I mentioned, this can look like literal feasting, but especially metaphorical feasting. If we look at this theme in the context of Luke, as we continue, we'll see Jesus at the, towards the end of his life, right before he goes to the cross, what does he do with his disciples? He feasts with them. He institutes the Lord's Supper. And he goes to the cross, time of fasting. And then as we consider a couple weeks ago on Easter Sunday, what does he do on the first Easter? He breaks bread. He feasts with his disciples. We saw how that, in some sense, is paradigmatic of how the church has spent every resurrection day, every Sunday. In the book of Acts, we see that the, the early church does this very thing. They co- come together on the first day of the week to break bread. Not just in their homes, but in the Lord's Supper. We are a feasting people. And this feasting, this feasting which is expressed in one way which, in which it's expressed in the Lord's Supper, will find its fulfillment in the age to come. The New Testament speaks of the age to come as a wedding banquet. A wedding banquet. As one of my uh, former professors once said, it's a banquet in which you or I are not invited to. That may seem counterintuitive. But you're not invited to it because you're the bride of Christ. And brides are not invited to their own wedding. This is a, a wedding, a banquet that's being prepared for you. Brothers and sisters, we are a feasting people. We are a feasting people. We might ask at this point, okay, this is, I see what Jesus is saying here, but this doesn't seem to fit my experience. My life seems to be filled with suffering, tribulation, and trials. It, 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 feel, it seems to be filled with metaphorical fasting and not metaphorical feasting. How does this passage comport with my actual Christian experience? Now, it's very true that the Bible speaks much about suffering and even says we should expect a difficult life as Christians. We have to remember that, yes, this new age has dawned, the kingdom of God, the new creation. It's dawned, but it's not been consummated. We still live in this present evil age, an age of of suffering, an age of evil. And there are times where literal fasting is appropriate, times where lament and and grieving and mourning are, are appropriate. We see that in the Psalms, the Psalms in which we sing. In the book of Acts, we see examples of of the New Testament church fasting before momentous occasions. The kingdom of Christ has dawned, but has not been consummated. But to answer this more um, directly, how how does feasting comport with suffering? Well, the main point of this passage has been we rejoice, we feast, because the bridegroom has come. The bridegroom has come. One point that Paul makes in his epistles, he fleshes out this point. He says how we're united to Christ by the Holy Spirit. And through that union, we experience the power and presence of our, of our Savior. But you may ask, well, where do I especially 
experience the power and presence of Christ in my life. And Paul is adamant that it's in moments of weakness, of suffering, of tribulation, that the power and presence of Christ is especially manifested in your life. And Paul continues by saying that it's because of that realization that he can boast, rejoice, and even feast in times of suffering. It's in those moments that Christ shows up to strengthen our weak faith, to sympathize with us, to encourage us. And I've used a, this illustration before, but it's sort of like, you know, if, you're, if you want to go to a football game, where are you going to go? You're going to go to a football field. You're going to check the Seahawks schedule or a college or high school's schedule and, and find out where their stadium is. In a similar way, suffering is the, the playing field of God's power. If we want to look for the presence and power of Christ in our life, we look to our suffering. That's where God promised, has promised to show up in a special way to strengthen us. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we can indeed feast. We can feast in our sufferings because we know that's where the bridegroom's presence and power is manifested in this earthly pilgrimage. Well, beloved in the Lord, as we uh, conclude, this text calls us to be a feasting people. A people who, yes, at times, feast literally and, and with food and drink, but a, a people who always feast metaphorically on all the benefits, benefits we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. 